Good afternoon and welcome to the UK Column viewers, wherever you are in the world. Now, we have a special guest today. It's a lady that I last spoke to, I think a little bit over a year ago. And uh, we had a very interesting conversation about all matters to do with what was happening in the world. Uh, quite a bit on alternative media, uh, a little bit on what was happening uh, in the world at the time, a bit on the BBC and a few other things. And uh, I'm delighted that uh, I've got Gemma Cooper with me today and we are going to have an interview. Now, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be interviewing her or Gemma's <laughs> going to be interviewing me. We'll see how this one pans out. But Gemma, welcome to UK Colin Studios. Well, thank you for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I've been a, such a fan for such a long time, subscriber to the channel. And it's a real honour. So thank you very much. Good. Well, it's, it's great that you finally made it down here. Now, I think I'm allowed to say, say to you, tell us a bit about yourself, because you've got a very interesting background. I'm going to say you were professional, you were uh, very much in mainstream, and then something happened in your life. <laughs> and now, sometime later, you, you're a new person. So where did you start off? That's a very good way of putting it, actually, that I'm a, I'm a new person, because I, I, I feel more that I'm the person I was always meant to be, actually. I feel much more authentic than, um, than I have done in a long time in the last few years. But yeah, I was, I was a BBC journalist, presenter, producer um, for quite some time. I was in the BBC for 21 years. Um, before that, I was a newspaper journalist uh, on a big regional daily paper with a big circulation before the days of the Internet. So when newspapers really did have validity, that's yeah. how you got your info. So I was really well trained by a bunch of grisly old hacks in the northeast of England in, in journalism. And I was there for five years and then I was headhunted by the BBC in the north. And then I moved back to the West Country and was working at BBC Bristol for 21 years until, drum roll, 2020 when everything happened and I'd been in, I'd had a foot in the alternative world for quite some time because I'd had a kind of a, well, not kind of a, it was, it was a very profound spiritual awakening in 2011, 2012. And that had led me to, to um, going to alternative conferences and, and hearing people talk about the very events that were happening in 2020. And back in 2012, I was thinking, this all sounds a bit far-fetched. This all sounds a bit dystopian not in my lifetime surely not this this you know and then it happened and I thought god I've been hearing about this in the alternative world so it's it, suddenly I had two two journalistic heads on one seeing what the mainstream media were saying and two knowing what the alternative world and 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 and, and authors and, and you know conference speakers have been saying and thinking oh god is this it and the more I watched the mainstream and the BBC especially looking at it from within I thought god this this is it this is this thing that's been brewing and I went on some anti-lockdown marches because I wanted to find out what was really going on and I wanted to hear speakers. The BBC found out about it. As a member of staff, you're not supposed to go on any protests at all. Um, so they very quickly suspended me, much quicker than they seem to have suspended another member of BBC staff that's currently in the headlines. Currently got some problems. Currently yeah. got a few yeah. issues of their own. Um, yeah, I was suspended very quickly. Um, but at that point, I just had decided to leave because... I couldn't reconcile what I was being asked to do in my professional life with what I truly felt inside was happening. And I saw the lack of journalism within this major broadcast, and not yeah. just in the BBC, obviously it was the whole of the mainstream, but I thought that's not how I was trained. If I'd have gone to my old news editor with a story with one side, with no other thing, he would have, he would have kicked me out and said, come back when you've got a proper story, girl. If there was no journalism going on whatsoever. And I thought, I was, what's the expression? Cognitive dissonance. The person I was on the inside and what I was being asked to do on the outside just didn't match at all. Um, so I was suspended and they wanted to kind of discipline me and ask me a lot of questions. And some of those questions were quite near the knuckle. You know, do you share the opinions of these people at these protests? You're seen applauding. And I, I'm not on social media. I didn't put anything out. I did it in my private personal time. I didn't do it in work time. But while I was um, suspended... Uh, some of my BBC colleagues in the newsroom where I worked in Bristol were so disgusted with my actions that they went to the tabloid press um, in an attempt to smear me, destroy my reputation, make me out to be a, a super spreader, uh, a not very nice person, so that I made people cry in the office by questioning whether this was a real thing or not. Um, so it was a very, very difficult time for me. And what was so very... What, sorry, Gemma, was it, was, it lock, was it lockdown that was the actual 
final trigger for you? What what was the what was the key bit that took you to the point where you knew you had to do something different or you had to move on? Um, I think probably lockdown was big for me because of the reality of the anti-lockdown marches and how quickly they grew and the cross-section mm. of people who, as, as we all know, the people that you never thought you'd see on a protest, these nice middle-class, middle-England people just going, this is something not right about this. And the swathe of, of, of people that... that represented England and Britain within the yeah. protest weren't being represented on on the national broadcaster and you know I know the BBC has a policy that they wouldn't cover protests because they, they say it encourages people to go to them which I don't agree with they will only cover them the impact of a protest so if it, if it closes roads and it causes lots of disruption but I thought no it's, it's an attempt to manipulate reality and what the license fee payers are actually feeling right these are people that pay the BBC's wages so I thought so, the BBC had more of a duty to to report on them. You, you've given me something very interesting there because um, we, we UK column team went up to the, uh, the bigger London march and uh, how many people were there? Well, there's still discussion about that, but was it half a million or three quarters of a million? Let's say it was half a million people. I could believe that. And the BBC didn't report it. Mm -hmm. So I contacted, first of all, the BBC press office and asked why, and I didn't get a proper answer. And then I sent an email to Tim Davy, Davy himself. And to my astonishment, I did get a reply. And, wow. and he, he just said, well, you know, we, we choose on any particular day what, what we're going to be reporting on the BBC. And on that particular day, you know, we chose not to. We chose not to report <laughs> 500,000 people on the streets of, of uh, well, I mean, <laughs> so, in, a, in a way, it was a gift because it backfired, didn't it? Because so many people were like, hang on, I was there and I saw the reality of it. Why isn't, why isn't the BBC? I think a lot of people at that point still would, were relying on the BBC. Not, yeah. not everybody was full on into there's something really awful going on. People were just opposing lockdown. But when they saw that it just wasn't being reflected, it was, people yeah. were like, hang on a minute, why? Why? So it was, more, it was questions upon questions for lots of people. Yeah. So the BBC really didn't do itself any favours. If it just reported a couple of them, maybe people wouldn't have been so vociferous in their criticism then of the BBC. Yeah. So it kind of was like a domino effect of questioning everything from that point for so many people. Yeah, which is, which is part of the, um, uh, the good outcome of lockdown because the, the lockdown was a brilliant time for the UK column because a lot of new people started to come to us and, and say, we're looking at what you're reporting and they got interested. So we saw a big surge in new viewers to the UK column, thanks to lockdown. We wouldn't wish lockdown, obviously, on people in UK or anywhere else, but for us, it, it was a really good point. And we've kept those people and now you see, now we can say we're seeing more and more professional people locking on and listening to what we're talking about. Mm. Plus, we've had, our, we've had our MPs, we've had Sir Christopher Choke join us, and we've had Andrew Bridgen recently, who's going to come back, uh, come back to us, talk to us. And this, together with the medical professionals that have come forward, tells you that you are achieving something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, you just, you've just hit the nail on the head. It's the amount of professional people uh, that are questioning and carry and won't stop questioning. I mean, I, I risked everything, you know, walking away from the BBC. It was all I'd ever known. I never got married and had kids. My career was everything to me till that point. Um, but Andrew Bridgen risked everything. But once you're on, once you have that understanding of the world isn't what, what we think it is, you can't go back. You can't, you can't pretend. No. So, you know, we're slowly galvanizing. And like you say, we, we had a conversation a year ago where we were at another meeting of people who think very much like us and the timing wasn't quite right but there are more and more groups like that now everywhere yeah just slowly galvanizing in this cross-section of society that is just like we're not having this it's it's you know yeah. in a way it's massively encouraging and i think i did the right thing difficult though it was i did the right thing for me you did you definitely did because otherwise you'd still be buried in the bbc and yeah. you probably would be feeling 
sad. You'd be feeling depressed because I, you'd be locked in that system, wouldn't you? Well, as somebody, so it's, yeah, somebody said to me, Jem, we could see it in you. Your soul was going to shrivel up and die within the next yeah, year. Because you're not being truthful no, to yourself. And I think, I think that gets a lot of people in a lot of jobs, maybe, maybe in the NHS. They know that what they're now involved in isn't right, but they haven't got the courage to make the jump. And so they're not they're not being honest to themselves, mm. and I think that can pull a pull a lot of people down. Oh, actually. I think not being true to yourself is one of the most uh, depressing and 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 distressing places to be because if you're not living an authentic life, what kind of life are you living? If you're lying to yourself, it's the ultimate lie, really. And to do to stay somewhere for money, I get it. I get it. I was I was scared when I left, and I, I had to work. But then there are things that are more important than money. And now you've only got one life in this incarnation and yeah. being true to yourself. And, and it was funny, after I took that first step, and I think this might have happened for other people that have left professions, I took the first step in, in stepping into my power and thinking, I can't do this. I cannot be in this organization. But then the universe, whatever you want to call it, a higher force, a higher power, yeah. then said, right, okay, you've taken the first step and I'm going to help you take the second and the third and the fourth. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then, lo and behold, doors started opening in other avenues, and then I met you, and actually it's been okay, and it's fortune favours the brave. I, I think that's true. And what, what's interesting about where we've got to in this conversation, and I'm going to say to the audience, completely unscript. So Gemma arrived uh, by taxi 20 minutes ago, and we just a little bit of organising, but we haven't discussed what we were going to discuss. So we're sitting here. This is all absolutely off the cuff. But <laughs> where, where have you got to? You've got to the point that you think that out there a lot of people are starting to do things. And I think that as well. But we get, we get a lot of people who email us and they'll say, we see what's going on, but mm, we can't really do anything and we're getting a bit down and a bit depressed. And I usually go back and I'm saying, well, we see a different picture, we being the UK column, because we've got a lot of people uh, contacting us. And what we see is that more and more people are beginning to do something. It might be something really simple. They might send an, they might send an email. They might um, decide to go to a mini protest, um, you know, stand in the park or one of those things. So relatively simple thing to do. But they always say, once we did it, we felt better. Mm. And I think this is so important that if, if, you're, if you're one of the UK column viewers or your viewers of other media channels and you're thinking that this thing's pulling you down, then the first thing to do is to do something, however small, say no, talk in the Tesco queue, but also try and get somebody else to join you because there's strength in numbers. And if there's two of you or three of you, doesn't need to be 30, two or three, then you get a lot more confidence and you can do things. Mm. So I, I believe that although we can see things sort of getting bad and tending to close in, there's a lot of people who are now starting to wake up. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the phrase, the great awakening, because that implies one big amorphous event that everybody will do at the same time. But it's an awake, awake, there are a lot of awakenings, aren't there? So yeah. A lot of people have woke up through um, politics and, and, and seeing that, you know, what the government was saying, or well, just knowing that politically, I mean, if you want to wake up to the fact that politicians are corrupt, but a lot of people, it's political. A lot of people woke up for the last few years because of the health side of things and big mm. pharma. A lot of people woke up through lockdown. Um, but I, I mean, I had my awakening it was definitely a very profound personal spiritual awakening. It came through yoga and meditation way back in 2011. So I had a lot of quote unquote paranormal experiences, um, which led me to believe we're so much more than just this, you know, yeah. that there is a whole yeah. other reality. And my yoga teacher was very good at explaining what was going on with me at the time and that, that it was something to be welcomed, not, not, not scared of. And that was my awakening. But what is definitely true is that there is an awakening of sorts. And however you come to it, whichever your kind of way in is, the end result is the same. And that's you get on this kind of energetic stream and you can recognize like-minded people and you, you do strike up conversations. We yeah. were talking earlier, you struck up a conversation with the guy you bought your lunch from. Completely un, off the cuff, unexpected. Yeah. So we are, you, you begin, and there's, you drop a layer of kind of um, pretense. There's no small talk. It's like we're all 
we're all vibrating on this kind of same frequency of seeing the world in a different way. And once you do, you can't go back. No, absolutely, you can't go back. Um, I reflect on where I was. Um, When did I leave? I left the Navy in 93. So I'm going to say for that uh, 21 years of my life up to 1993, I was absolutely in the system. In the military, um, you you believe in the job. You, you, you're not going to last long if you don't do that. You believe in the job. It's a lot more enjoyable than I think a lot of people th- think it is. Certain, certainly it was in that, those days in the Navy. Um, you believe in your country. You believe there's a justice system. You believe there is a democracy operating. Uh, you believe that the NHS is providing good health care to everybody. And you believe that the bad guys deserve to be locked up in prison. That was my rough mentality. And then some interesting things begin to happen and I begin to learn. And now when I look back, if you'd have said to me then, 1991-92, in 2023, you're going to be doing this, I, I would have been stunned. I would have been absolutely stunned. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, have it any other way because of what I've learned over over that time, and uh, the key the key bit for me, because we did talk about this a little while ago, but one of the key things that made a difference for me was going to visit somebody in prison. Um, so, yep, you have this view that the bad guys deserve to be locked up in prison, but when you go in a high security prison for the first time, that. Uh, made a huge difference to how I saw the world, how I saw the people who were in prison. And um, I've got to say, as the years have gone by, I've been into quite a few prisons to visit people. And I have a completely different view on what the system is and what it thinks it's doing and what it's actually doing, because it's oppressing, oppressing people. Um, so that's one of the one of the key bits for me. Mm. See, that's an unusual yeah. avenue in, as well. You know, you, you had a an awakening of, of of sorts by by going into prison. You know, you don't know how people are being triggered or affected or, or what it is that just makes people go. And this is happening. It is happening with within tremendous speed now. This 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 yeah. this event in human consciousness, yeah. this development in human consciousness. Some people that might be out, they might be walking their dog one day and they just see something or hear something and they have that moment. And I said to somebody, what is it when you wake up? You know, what is it? And she explained it really well. It's somebody I work with now at the World Council for Health. She said, Gem, it's just that moment where your soul and your conscience kick in. They kick in and they override the ego. And it's for that split second that they kick in and override the ego and you, and you perceive the world a different way because you're seeing it through your soul, not through the ego. She said, that's the bit where the magic starts mm. to happen. And that for some people could be having a baby. It could be falling in love. I don't know. But you just have that moment where you shift your perception and you see things much more clearly. And for you, it was obviously prison. Well, it was, it was that and, uh, and the, the issue of children because the, the first major event was uh, a lady called Linda who came to see me. And I, I, I won't do the story because it's too long, but the... The essence of it is a lady calls me and said that her, her young daughter was stolen at gunpoint. A daughter of 11 years old, 10 or 11, was stolen at gunpoint by Neath Port Talbot Social Services in America. And that was such an incredible wow. telephone call. I can still remember sort of where I was when I took that call. And I listened to what she had to say, and I'm thinking this is unbelievable. And then she said, I'll... I'll come and see you and I'll bring all the documents. And so Linda arrived down in Plymouth with a wheelie suitcase and that suitcase was full of all the court documents. And I I spent, I think it was three days, it might have been longer, when we went through the documents. And at the end of that time, I realised the story she was telling me was absolutely true. Mm. And uh what what happened next was that uh, I gave a talk about what had happened to her because she found it too difficult to talk to a public audience. It was too personal. It was too emotional. And I did that for her and that was put out. And then Ian Crane asked if I would do a talk about something at AV2 in Bristol. I can't remember when that was, 2000 and 
something. Yes. <laughs> and I did that. And the topic I chose was child stealing by the state. And my life has never been the same because that was the trigger for people emailing and phoning me, all with these incredible stories about what had happened to their children. Mm. And uh, yeah, so a journey of going through some pretty tough prisons to talk to people, why they were there and how they were finding it, uh, but also mainly mothers, some dads talking about what had happened with their children. But isn't it funny, then, it's like, with, it's, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but the, the, the life you had before was so mainstream. Yeah. So, you know, in the, you're in the forces. You know, that you're taught to obey orders. You're not taught to question anything, well, are this you? Might have been a, <laughs> yeah, this might have been a small problem for me because one of, one of the jokes I can tell on that is that, is that, you know, when people asked you your opinion, I mistakenly thought that they wanted your opinion. They wanted your professional opinion. When, of course, they didn't. What they wanted was to be told what they wanted to hear. And I, I now realise that, that one of the things I got badly wrong was that, when I was asked something, I gave an answer, which was always truthful. But, you know, I hope I had a bit of professionalism with it. But this is a bad thing because, as I said the other day, if you're going to get to the top of the armed forces, you've got to be a yes person. Whatever comes up, you've got to say yes. And if you don't believe in it, you've still got to do it. And that wasn't me. That reminds me of... of the BBC, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I mean, we are, but, yeah. I, you know, the BBC is the civil service broadcasting arm of the government, isn't it? And it's exactly the same in the BBC. And you, the more you say yes, yeah. the more you get on, the more you question, no. <laughs> doesn't go so well. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to fit in. And that that expression that you you have to fit in was one of the things they told you. Uh, when you got to a particular, we'll say mid-rank in the military, they run these courses, which they call staff courses. And the aim of that is to prepare you to do a job in the Ministry of Defence. So instead of being at sea in a ship, you're going to go to the to work for the for the Navy in the Ministry of Defence in London. And you were given a course, taught certain things, but also expected to get through that course. And an important component was that you would be deemed to fit in with the, the world that you were going to go to. So politics was going to rear its head. You were going to grovel to the politicians. This is also something I was never very good at. But an MP <laughs> might choose to come on board a ship and you'd see all these grown men suddenly, you know, it was like the Queen was coming when in fact it was only the local MP. See, I was wrong. I now can look back and say there were certain things in my head that was wrong, but I, I wasn't going to be one of the person groveling to the MP, so I probably wouldn't have fitted in. Even then, you see that so, your something was your perception. Your perception was, nah, this is something wrong with this picture. You know, this this isn't sitting right with me. Even true. when you were in it, and it's funny. All the time I was in the BBC, and I did love my career to a point, but I think my ego loved the career. Like, I was firmly in my ego until I had my awakening. So I was very inured to the system like you, but I still was like, oh, I don't know, I don't feel like kind of gel here. And even though I did well and I had loads of friends until what happened happened um, and went to weddings and holidays with people and everything, but it just didn't quite feel right for mm. me. And I do remember when I left uh, the big daily paper, and I'm not giving away anything here at all about the BBC that I shouldn't, but I gave up a staff job at a big daily paper to go and work for the BBC and they gave me a six month contract. And I said, well, hang on a minute, I just left a really secure job. And they said, oh, don't take it personally. We do it to everybody. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, you need to see if you're one of us. Mm. And I yeah, was very just... young. I was very young then. I didn't really understand what that meant. Yeah. Um, but as I progressed through the ranks, I did understand. What that, well, that, that absolutely is the language, isn't it? And, and the moment we get that, we can understand that's the reality of working in the BBC or the military. It's also there in the NHS without any question at all. Now you're starting to be talking about how the control system really works. Mm. Mm. And, and so each, as I see it, each level you go up the pyramid, you, you know, you're probably going to get more pay, you're going to get more privileges, you're going to be, you're going to have your ego stroked so that oh, I've achieved this, I'm above them and I'm well above them. And that, that's what, that keeps, draws you, that's you what in. keeps you in as well. So it's a gilded yeah. cage. And I don't think it's, um, 
you know, it's by far from just the BBC or the military. It's all corporations are like that too. Yes, so that's cor corporate culture. Yeah. You know, so you, you start at the bottom and then they they wriggle out who will who will make good management and by seducing them and giving them more perks. Yeah. And, and it's a trap that everybody is in because we're all conditioned to live our lives until you have some kind of awakening of whatever your awakening is. Your life goes down the road of how will this make me look and what will other people think of me? And we're conditioned right from school to, to yeah. think in that vein. How will I look to other people? How is this making me look? How is it yeah. affecting my ego? Yeah. And that, they program you like that because they know they can run society for the corporate, corporate benefits, for the yeah. elite benefits. If we're all programmed in that paradigm, nobody wants to step out of it. Yeah. And it's very seductive. It's like the BBC, I was saying, saying to somebody once, it's all very seductive while you're playing the game, you know, and you can go to all these showbiz things and meet celebrities and be backstage at this or whatever, and it's all through work, and you, we'll give you all the riches in the world as long as you do what you're told. Yeah. As long as you yeah do that's you're the key bit. You, you've, got to, you've got to play the game. Mm -hmm. You've got to do as you're told. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to ask you, um, lockdown, COVID, matters COVID. What's your thoughts on the whole of the COVID well, Scandemic. yeah, uh, I, I thought a lot of things at the time, um, and this is my personal view now, is that I wonder if it is a, a rehearsal for something else that's going to come later, maybe not in our lifetime now, but right. it, it's got the kids very primed into remembering when they were at school and they had to mask up and social distance. And we went, because they're so young, we're so young, four and five-year-olds, bless them, it's gone right into their programming you know if you know the expression get a child before seven i'll give you yep. the person um so i wonder if it's for that and i do think as well it was really an experiment to see how many people were willing to have something put into their body well whatever that was at, the, yeah. at this point in history what will it be in 40 50 years time with the transhumanist agenda which is definitely very much on the way you can see it on the ministry of defense's website you know the human augmentation project the merging of man and machine that's we're not far off that so if you're going to merge man and machine, how are you going to do it? One way would be to put something in somebody's body. So I think it was a, 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 an experiment in human consciousness and, and behavior, as we know from psychological nudge units and all that. And they, that's, yeah. that's out in the public domain now. So I think it, it wasn't just a one-off. That's what I think. It's going to happen again. And then how far people go next time will be seen as how far the programming was effective. effective this time. That's my yeah. own personal thoughts. A lot of people have said, oh, if it happens again, Jim, it's going to happen really quickly. I don't think it will because I think there's enough people who think like us now that will no way be locked down again. Yeah. So I wonder so if we, be... what we need another generation to go. Yeah, another generation yeah. to go. And kids will like, because when you're really young and then something happens to you, it goes so deep into your psyche and consciousness that it be almost becomes a part of you. And yeah. I think maybe the children is where, where, where it was really aimed at. Yeah, um, this, this, is, this is a very interesting point because um, uh, we have, I'll say we, UK column, me, has been interested in the psycho psychological aspect for a long time. And when you see the government, I, I always enjoy mentioning the document because if people haven't seen it, they, they've got to see it is the Mindspace document from 2010, that's the Cabinet Office document, which you'll find if you just search for it as mindspace.pdf. The government of its day, the Conservative government, boasting that they could change the way people thought and behaved, and they, the people, wouldn't know anything had been done to them. Or if they realised something had changed, they wouldn't know how it had been done. And you think... That technology developed, put in use by a government full of people who are defective in their morality, thought processes, behavior, to the point of criminality with some. They have got a psychological tool in their hands to change our behavior. And that, that tool is out there. So to me, yeah, I can, I can agree with that, that basically the lockdown was conditioning and who have you really got? The young minds. Mm, yeah. Definitely. And also those young minds are now wedded to technology. So they, yeah. they, they've got the double whammy of being, having that very deep programming of, of uh, oh, I remember this, you know, social distancing, you know, temperatures, masks. I remember all this. That's fine. Oh, another injection. Yeah, my mum and dad had those. That's all fine. And this, you know, where's yeah. that going? Where's that all going to go? I mean, I do 
it's, really well, it goes to control. There's only one way, uh, one reason that it's been done is for people in power to control the rest of us. And I had a chat with a gentleman this morning, which was all about the banking system and, uh, and the power of the banks, largely based in Switzerland. But even in that discussion on banks and money and the power of the banks, what did he get onto? The use of language in order to confuse people as to what was happening and also the use of language to downplay criminality from the banks. And one of the things he raised was that if if you had um, the media or the big papers talking about fraud and corruption in, in, the, in the banks, the um, financial ombudsman, the financial um, regulators, that's the word I'm, I'm looking for, would be saying that basically, no, this, this was just a little bit of um, uh, maladministration in the bank. You, it was criminal, but by the time it gets reported, you change the language which takes, mm. takes the heat out of it. Mm. So that was completely different subject, but we're, sorry, d- uh, discussion, but it was getting on to the same subject, yeah. which is applied psychology. Yeah. 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 And the BBC is a master at it, I've got to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's all very, it's production values, I think. Uh, you know, when you, you give this very sleek, um, package and it's wrapped up in decades of broadcasting history and and the music that is played and, yeah. and the titles of new shows it's yeah it's it's, it's a production it's um, it's entertainment it's a show, it's a show yeah it's even, even when it's news it's a show oh it's always entertainment it's always it's always you know it's the, it's the black box in the corner of the room that you put on because you're bored and you want some distraction and you and you, think, and you and you want to be entertained, and the news is a form, very much a form of entertainment because right. it generates the reaction in the viewer. You know, you get a charge from it, whether the story is good or bad, or you know, you get this yeah. charge, you get this reaction, and that is that is show business. People go to be entertained and have a reaction. Yeah, uh, yeah, true, absolutely true. And the the other thing that I believe that the BBC has done is that it's introduced a lot of depressing programming. So whether it's EastEnders or it's any other drama that the BBC's put on, um, that drama is always unbelievably dark. Mm. A psychologist told me on one occasion that one one of the, the tricks to really make an impact on people is that you take them on a roller coaster ride through the film or whatever it is they're watching. So it might start out neutral and then it goes into something very sad and then there's something a bit happy. Mm. And then then somebody's died. And so it does all of this and it ends on a neutral level or a negative level. And the the man said to me that when you've you've been subjected to this, the problem is your brain doesn't know where to store it. It doesn't know whether to take it and put it into a happy box or to put it into a sad box. Mm. And and so the material that you've watched tends to hang around in your mind for some time until your brain settles it. And of course, if you watch one program and then you're on to nice, happy things in a normal life, it's not a problem. Mm. But if you're being subjected to that all the time, I, I, I remember him talking to me about that and I found it fascinating. He, he actually was one of the um, psych, um, psychologists that started to help me understand what neuro-linguistic programming really was and he was the person who said well my goodness this stuff is very powerful and I I then said to him so what happens when a criminal can use it what happens when a child abuser can use NLP and he went quite pale actually and said well they could abuse the child and the child wouldn't remember and I'm mentioning children now in that light but actually I think the BBC regards the UK public as a a childlike audience. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I think um, from my, this is my personal point point of view, having worked there, maybe not directly in, in a regional newsroom, you're quite close to your audience. So there is a better relationship. But I think as a national broadcaster, it holds the audience in something akin to contempt, actually. Yeah. It's a we, We're we, all CB, CB, what is it? CBs? CBBs. CBBs. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, yeah. I think it really, even... Even now, we sit here today and there's a, 
it still won't be transparent on on a on a presenter that's alleged to have done something yeah. far worse than I did, um, but was allowed to stay in their role because yeah. they we weren't quite sure what was going on. I wasn't allowed to stay in my role. I was frog marched out the thirty minutes after they found out what I'd apparently done that was so awful, you know, which was have an opinion. Um, but the the public, the license payers, are quite rightly demanding answers and an inquiry. And the BBC's again been slow to act, slow to act. I think it thinks nobody's looking. I think it thinks if we just get on with being the BBC, then maybe we'll question us. Is it that or is it absolute arrogance that they don't really see why they should bother with anything the public thinks? That this machine, this juggernaut is chugging on and it's absolutely arrogant. And, well, the public's a bit upset, but we'll just carry on. We'll just carry on and hopefully they'll all go away. Yeah, which people are definitely not going to do now. Yeah, Yeah, I think there is that as as well. And the BBC has always been very cloistered and its policy is always to say nothing. But, I mean, its track record over the last, what, 12 months, it gave gave Philip Schofield a platform, which you could argue that you need some sensitivity to the the person Philip Schofield was allegedly involved with, you know, that, that that person needs to be yeah. thought of too. And, you know, he was accused of some very serious things, but let's give him a platform. Why would yeah. you Why would you do that, actually? It's quite tasteless. And obviously then you had the whole Gary Lineker thing which blew up. And again, the BBC, it's like, it's consistently getting it wrong now. And it's not learning from people who are approaching it and saying, you're not doing it right. And it's sort of going, la, 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 we'll just carry on being the BBC. Well, are they getting it wrong or... Um, convoluted, but are they getting it wrong or what appears wrong to us is actually what they want to do. They want to cause confusion. They want to cause angst. They want to cause a disgruntled public. This is all winding the public up and leading them into no man's land. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's that clever. I don't know. It's a very good point. I, I don't think they're deliberately... It's it's an institution. I don't think it's deliberately doing that. I just think it's got such it's so it's such an institutionalized way of operating right. that I don't know if it knows how to change. Anecdotal story in response to that. And many years ago, I was sat with a family member in in a very nice sunny garden in London, and we breakfast in the garden, little tiny back garden. And the particular individual had had a career in the NHS. They'd recently changed job. And I said, how's the new job going? And they said, with a pause, well, I don't know. I think it's frying pan and fire because I'm in the new location. There's a lot of good things, but we have meetings and planning meetings and strategy meetings and suggestions are made for new ideas, which are clearly nonsense. And all the professional people say, yeah, but if we do that, we're gonna have problems, this is gonna happen. And then they do it. And then all of the old time staff uh, are faced with an increased workload to sort it all out. <laughs> it, it's, it's just madness, it's, it's, it's bad management. And I said, well, what if it's not bad management? What if it's good management? And the person looked at me as though I was a complete idiot, which is fine. And then it went quiet. And then they said, oh, my God, that explains that. And it explains that. And it explains that. And all I was really doing was saying, and it's an assumption we all make, that Every organisation, we could say the government, we could say BBC, we could say the NHS, the police. Yes, they're really working for the right things. But that's that's an assumption. And it's a very not a naive assumption because we don't even know who runs these organisations. But if you look at what's happening in the world, we're seeing increased breakdown everywhere. The police don't work properly. We're, they're thuggish. They're stupid. They're applying forces in the wrong way. The government can't really run the, the country. The NHS is breaking down. Is this just accident or is somebody driving it? And I, I'm going to say yeah. I've come to the conclusion that if it's happening in a whole different sector, of sorry, if it's happening in different sectors of society at the same time, the chances of it being an accident in each one of those are pretty slim. There is, I mean, absolutely, that's a very valid point. And there, there's something else I want to bring in, which is the, um, that this moment in, in human consciousness and evolution 
has been prophesized in so many different religions and and and, and mythologies and um, you know, a great friend Thomas Sheridan he's a friend of mine and I know he's a great friend of yours he's talked about how this is in the Kali Yugas and it's the ending of a cycle and actually is it all these kind of constru- control structures breaking down they're breaking down and being shown to be what they really are for the first time and people are also because of that perception shift that we talked about earlier people are seeing it they're seeing that these structures which we thought were there to protect us and to help us are anything but it's the actual opposite yeah. but is it because there's something more at work than just the crumbling of old facades and institutions and corruption being revealed that there's actually a I believe and I, I'm sure many people because because I talk to people about this kind yeah. of thing there is a spiritual side to this well, it's well, not just political yeah. socioeconomic it's there's something changing in the world. It's what comes to replace yeah. it, though. This is where we've got to be careful. What comes to replace it? Yeah. One big world government, which says, we'll sort everything out, or us. We say, yeah. we'll sort everything out. This, well, that's, I, this I, is the crossroads, I believe. I certainly agree that um, there's something spiritual happening, and it's happening at the same time as all these major political events and events in society. And I can say that over the years, particularly when I've been involved in a public event, so public speaking or one of the AVs, inevitably, when people get the opportunity to talk to you, um, there may be other people around, so it's not private, but but small groups of people. The group will always have somebody who say, do you think this is all politics or do you think there's more to it? And I would always say it's a spiritual battle. And off stage you find you could really engage with people. I'll go, go back some years. You could engage with that small group and you could have a very interesting discussion about what that meant. But I would say to them that whatever you think is going on, there's a spiritual battle. The thing that's happening now is you can engage with an audience on this topic from the stage. And this means that in, in the audience, there's a lot more people that sense that there's something else going on they might not, they don't know what it is, they just sense something's happening and they're hungry to find out more. So if you say to them, it's spiritual, then the questions start, what do you mean? And what I found, and I think, it, I think it's a really encouraging thing, is you find that people will then start opening up and they will give you their own thoughts and they will tell you of their own experiences. And it's amazing how many people have had pretty extraordinary experiences, as you've said, which has then led them to say, hang on, things aren't quite mm. as I thought. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's something deeper. And I'm going to add to that because I come in from a Christian point of view that if you go and explore that, the key bit about it is that the prognosis for where we get to is, is a very nice thing. It's it's a loving, caring thing, as opposed to the sort of um, end of the world scenario that some people are drawn into, where where it's all dark and and it doesn't matter what we're going to do, this monster's going to appear. Mm. So I'm 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 more with you. I don't come at it from a Christian standpoint, but I'm I definitely believe in a higher higher force. But I think I think there's an element of both in here. You have to get rid of the old before you can make way for the new, and so, sometimes. Darkest before the dawn, isn't it? You're right on that, yeah. that, that kind of, this is where it's going to go. We go, we're at the top of the roller coaster now, and it's like, we're, with the, we're up here, and then yeah. boom. And then, you know, I, I, I'm with you, though. I'm, I'm quietly confident that this, this energetic shift that's happening to so many people and leading people to see the world in a different way is a positive thing. But I do wonder if consciousness or God or whatever you prefer to call it is on the run a little bit because it knows that there is this dark energy trying to kind of, I think, destroy it. This is the, techn- the, the technocratic agenda, I think, and the transhuman agenda of merging humans with machines. It's to get the bit that they can't have, the, the soul, the spirit, yeah, that, the spark. Well, you know, that's what it wants. And if it could mm. succeed, but then that is up to us. It is up to us. And I'm so buoyed by the amount of people now that, you know, lots of people two, three years ago, nearly now when I was in the papers all the time and my reputation was tarnished and I, I did lose friends and people thought I was but a nutter. You, you should wear this as a badge of honour. I, I do now. I do now. At the time it was awful. It was awful. My whole life as I'd known it was just in tatters yeah. and, and I thought, oh God, you know, and people, oh, you're a nutter. You are, you're one of them. 
And now people are like, oh, Gem, can I talk to you about this um, digital petition I want to sign? And I'm like, yes, you can, you know, and people are, yeah. so it's, it, it, someone's got to go first, haven't they? And then yeah. I mean, you've been going first a lot longer than me and, and well, black and Yeah, but even I've got to say in the earliest days for me, there were people who'd, who'd been doing amazing work in the background for, for years. And of course, the big difference for them is there was no internet. And so how were you going to find out about these people? You might find a little book or a booklet to read, or you might hear through the grapevine that there was somebody somewhere doing all this amazing research. Um, it's the internet, isn't it, that's, that much as I hate it, that's made it the information exchange explode, and we now know who's out there. But yeah, I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't be down because you've been uh, you've left the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the left, beast. I left the beast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we got we got some other places to go. But I've got to ask this question, which you might not want to answer. But what's your feeling about young Marianne? I Spring? knew I knew you were going <laughs> to me. She is a typical BBC ideal employee. You know, um, Oxbridge educated, so yeah. very very well programmed to be you know the system personified. If you go to any of those Oxbridge universities, you're taught how to debate, you're taught how to, you know, steer an argument and where you want to steer it. You know, you're taught, you'll yeah. be in primed for a position of power, aren't you? But she reminds me of a lot of people that I work with, that I witnessed at the BBC. And they're kind of um, this kind of person, you know, pick me, I'm ever so good. Really, I'm ever so good, you know, and, and male and female and really conscientious and really hardworking. And I really want to make my mark in the world. And I really believe she's so in the system and she's she's completely she completely believes what she's doing i think yeah. she's completely brainwashed she, she completely thinks that however she steers an argument i mean recent example is of course lovely darren at the light paper yeah who made that masterstroke of filming his entire three-hour interview with marianne yeah. spring yeah. and uploading it and you can see there's a huge amount of intelligent debate and discussion in that interview but she wants to go for that one tiny sliver yeah. of a fact that she which can, is not right is it just right. a no. basic principle it's it's not right no she it's can go for fair, the chink in the argument you know that yeah. they may or may not have an affiliation he may have spoken to someone once on a train platform yeah. somewhere you know and that's enough that's yeah. enough to make that link and make a story so that's not journalism either but i believe she i genuinely believe she thinks she's doing a public service and i think that still applies to a lot of people yeah. in these public institutions including the BBC, is that they haven't had their perception shift yet. And the best you can hope for with lovely Mariana is one day she has her prison moment, her yoga moment, yeah, whatever I, moment, and she thinks, oh my God, my whole life's been a lie. I'm really sorry, everybody. Yeah. Now let's all manifest that. <laughs> let's all hope Mariana has her moment where her soul kicks in and her ego goes down and she's like, oh my God, I've got it all wrong. She has yeah. her red pill moment. Yeah. For, for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's... Or if their egos way up, it's it's when they they get into a bad situation, something happens that's not very nice in their life, mm. and that has the yeah. impact on them, and then well. and then it changes. But yeah. she's been very shy because she's had several invites to communicate with the UK column, but she never wants to, which I think is very disappointing. Yeah. Um, Come, what, why? So. Come on, Mariana. Why? Brian's lovely. Why? Have the conversation. I think because I think there's, a, well, actually, we know a little bit of this story. A certain gentleman, um, quite a few years ago, five years ago, about that, was invited into the BBC to talk about his particular um, story. And that was, I'm not going to mention a name, but the, ba the background was an ex-policeman who was exposing a lot of stuff happening with the Metropolitan Police. He, he was treated very badly by the Met, but he got an invite in to talk to one of the BBC um, editor, uh, editorial reporting teams. You'll know the terminology better than I did, um, because they were encouraging him to think they were going to do a documentary on what, what had happened to him. Uh, he spent nearly six hours in the BBC talking to them about this and also other things. And I'd, I'd done an interview with him, and this was mentioned in front of the BBC team. And I'm allowed to say that they said to him, yeah, we thought it was a very professional interview. And that led on to the fact that that BBC team, with a reasonably senior manage, manager, were prepared to say, we watched the UK column. Wow. Right? So um, he said this was a very interesting experience mm. to be in the belly of the beast. And they were saying, we watched the UK. So I think 
that they watch the UK column, but poor old Marianne has been told, no, 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 don't go near the column. But I'm quite surprised they haven't come after you, actually, because they, they you know, the, the, the conspiracy land documentary is so, so, you know, that's, it's, it's, it does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? It's going after people that it perceives are far-right conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Well, there's a hell of a lot of far-right conspiracy theorists in the UK then at the moment, um, if that's your take on things. But I'm yeah. surprised. There's a, there, yeah, they, and I would think it would be the obvious because you've been going. You're one but of the. There's no such thing as bad publicity, you see. So we think to ourselves, "Yep, let's get the let's get UK column on the BBC." The Times had a, a go at a hit piece on us after the big um, lockdown protest in London, and uh, that that was a pretty appalling article because there was a lot of stuff that was factually just incorrect. Then the smear technique was in there. So my picture was put juxtaposed with somebody else that I'd never met. But the yeah. inference from the article was that we knew each other. And, and it, it was just an appalling article. So we, we did challenge the Times a little bit and, and they backed off and they haven't come near us again. But what would really make me laugh is that Mariana Spring did a hit piece and used a lot of the false information that the Times put out. That would be that would be really quite enjoyable. <laughs> and um, wow. what part, part of the report, yeah, keep it light-hearted. Part of the report was that I had written several theological books, which of course I haven't. But I instantly, when I read it, I instantly knew where that little report came from because if you just put Brian Gerrish into the, you know, into Google, that word you mustn't use, um, one of the people who comes up with that name is is a lay preacher in America who's quite famous for the books he's written, but he's called Brian Gerrish. So the media, this oh. side of the pond, couldn't even work out that was some poor American chap who's now been smeared by being called Brian Gerrish a la England. And, and Basic that, journalism. Yeah, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was interesting. Wow. Well, Gosh. okay, so, we, <laughs> so your view on Mariana is that she's not all bad. There will be people who are shocked. Right, the people will be going, how can you say that? Yeah, I don't, I, I, because I was in it, I worked with people and... and because of the people that, say, went to the tabloids because I'd gone to anti-lockdown marches, you know, these were people I'd worked with for 20 years. I, you know, never really found out who, who it was. I got my suspicions. But they, they in a heartbeat, they galvanised against me. It wasn't everyone by a long way. I had a lot of support from people at work. But they genuinely believed that, that they were right, going, basically being a grass and going... And, and instead of fronting me up face to face and going, Jem, what are you doing? And I could have a conversation. It was, but let's go to the tabloids and ruin her. But there were several people in the very same newsroom that went to Black Lives Matter in Bristol, the big one, you know, where the statue yeah. came down and everything. And that was a huge protest. And and they went to that at a time of lockdown. And as BBC members staff aren't supposed to go to protest. But that was completely overlooked because that's a that's an that okay was, protest. That was the right protest because there was yeah. this, this, this mindset. And I wouldn't have said that anyone I used to work with, even the person that went to the tabloids about me, was a bad person. I just genuinely believe they're so ingrained in seeing the world a certain way that you can't step up, you can't step away from the narrative without mm. being some other, some enemy. So what I don't want to do is say to Mariana Spring that she's an other, she's an enemy because she's down her little rabbit hole and I'm down mine. But if I met her, I wouldn't be antagonistic no, it would be like, better to try and convert it's better her. to be yeah. just like hi how you doing you're right we can have a difference of opinion and we can actually still be best friends if you yeah. want i don't want to be best friends with mariana spring but you know i would have said to the person who went to the tabloids about me because that's quite a vicious thing to do about your workmates you know no one likes the grass um i would have said you know can we not just have we've had different opinion about brexit in the newsroom we've had differences of opinion yeah. about trump you know yeah. and we'd all have big heated debates with journalists you know we're not shy of tiring wallflowers um but then everyone would have a, have a big debate and a row and then we'd all have a drink and go to the bar after work and still be mates. Yeah. Not with this. This is where it's a paradigm shift, isn't it? And it's Well, and, and also I wonder, I'm wondering whether does Mariana Spring think for herself, I'm going to use this word deliberately, or has she been reframed to think in a particular mindset? I mean, what training has she been put through and has she been given enough of the these courses in various subjects so that actually she's working to an implanted mindset. And 
Mm -hmm. People listening to this think this is a bit wacky. The first time I ever came across this stuff going on was a lady contacted me and um, I was talking about common purpose a lot at the time. She contacted me because she watched one of the talks that I'd given. And her story was that she was married to a policeman. The policeman went on several courses and she said, my husband changed. He would, he would get very aggressive. He might be watching the TV and perhaps there's a protest going on and he'd be shouting at the TV, you see those effing, these are the people we've got to deal with. And she said at a particular point, they went on holiday together for a week somewhere down by the sea. And she said, by the Wednesday, I knew I had to leave him. Right? And she said, but that's only the start of the story because when it got this bad, I started to speak to some of, she said, our friends, you know, to see if I could understand what had gone on. And she spoke to a friend who was a black policeman and she started to ask him about the courses and what were the courses they were doing at the time. They were called diversity courses. And the black policeman, uh, when she said to the black guy, what did you do in these courses? He said, well, if, if I didn't know I was effing black then, I do now. And she said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they would say, you know, you're on duty in the station and a black person walks in or a seat walks in and how do, you, how do you treat them? And we were all very surprised at this because we treat them like we treat anybody else. We'd ask them the same questions. But they keep needling at you until you'd admit that maybe you might do something slightly different. And what was actually going on was that in the course, they were planting little seeds in the mind of the policeman. And this black policeman could work out that in his station, at least, there hadn't been a problem. But by the time the diversity training was over, there were little thoughts, well, maybe somebody has done that or said that to me because it's discrimination. Whereas before it was, I'll say lads together, because it was probably mainly blokes. Mm. And this was part of the, the little story that led me through to the man talking about NLP. And when you then see the government boasting that these techniques can be used. Now, is the BBC clear of all this stuff? I don't think so. I think I think inside the BBC they're going to have their own behavioural insights team. Yes, I, yes, I, I do, and, yeah. And that will be tied in with with the material produced for the audience. I mean, well, I was I was so yeah. low level. I never got beyond the rank of, of broadcast journalist. I didn't want to. I didn't want to progress right. um, because. I wanted to have a nice life, basically. I didn't want the stress of more responsibility. But there are lots of unspoken rules, aren't they, in, a, in any yeah. culture. And so, like, for example, in our newsroom, you know, there was an unspoken rule that lunch break was at this time. Now, that was never set down in stone. But, you know, we all trooped off at a certain time. We all came back at a certain time. And if you took your break around different parameters, you're somehow odd. You know, so it was almost yeah. like you're programming yourself, you know, through the, the, the values of the culture. So... So as you progress further up, there would have been more behavioural codes and more behavioural codes. And before you know it, yeah. that you are being programmed neurolinguistically without anyone having to take you into a dark room yeah. and going, right, this is what you've got to do. Yeah, it's sort of drip. It's, it's, it's nudge, it's, isn't it? Very it's very nudge. It's yeah. nudge and it's yeah. subtle, but it's not that subtle either. So, yes, I think it's done by institutionally. It's done institutionally, the, these codes of behaviour and these codes of thinking. Yeah. Very subtle, but very effective. Very yeah, effective. and and you can you can get large groups of people with it. This is this is where it gets interesting. So when I delved into this, the NLP trained people said, you know, if if you were say you were teaching a class, you got thirty people in the class, then the effect you could get would be a bell curve. So some of the people you don't get, you just doesn't work with them. But the majority of that group of people, it will affect strongly. And then there'll be a group that are affected a little bit. And then the man said something creepy to me. He said, he said, um, just just think that you have a new laptop and 
and the thing's great and it works really fast. And then you decide you'll have this little screen saver and that's a nice game. And you add these little bits on. And then after a while, your laptop is starting to freeze or hang up. And he said, the danger with this stuff is that you get one little dose of NLP and then maybe a month later, you get in another course and getting another dose from a different trainer who might be NLP trained themselves. So they're not even a normal person. And he said, oh, what yeah. you've got is an accumulative buildup. And I found that really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, like I say, I was a lowly level broadcast journalist and I never yeah. progressed up the ranks. So I never really got to go on all these courses. I know plenty of um, people at the BBC did go on Common Purpose. I and mean, that was that's quite oh, a well-known well. fact. We um, we got the we got the admission at whatever year it was as to how many hundred thousand pounds have been spent on BBC Common Purpose training. So there you go, um, yeah. and that's a, that's a, in the public domain. Um, so yeah, it wouldn't you know that there are there are a lot of training courses the further up the ladder you go. There's management training courses. So I I wasn't privy to any of what went right. on in those courses at all. But I did see the institutional programming. So that that's yeah. very much a. Um, a, th a thing is a thing. Yeah. But I think, again, that's in all organisations, really. Um, I, I think so too, because it sort of spread its way through. A little bit of clock watching going on now. What have you been up to recently? Because you, you've had this change of heart. World Health Council? World Council for Health. World Council yeah, for World Health. World Council for Health, based in, uh, based in Bath, in, yeah. in the West Country, which is where I'm from. I mean, again, I'm very in incredibly... Lucky that through a series of synchronicities and coincidences and all the things you think, oh, it's just chance. I don't believe yeah. anything of that. I think it was definitely a guiding force. Um, so I'm now working for them. I have been for the last nearly six months now doing press and PR and presenting on their weekly live streams. And it's just such a joy to be working with people. And again, it just shows how we're, we're, we're galvanizing in numbers because everybody at the World Council for Health, which was formed in only September 2021 as a reaction yeah. to everything that had gone on. Um, Dr. Tess Laurie, one of the great co-founders, you know, she really has got a vision and she's making it work. And the organization is very effective challenging health policies around the world. But everybody working there has a story about being basically effectively kicked out of their old life. So we are our secretary is an ex-medical secretary from the NHS. We've right. got um, project amazing project manager. Um, we've got a, a great girl, well, woman, and she was working for Virgin and um, wouldn't have the thing. Uh, and so she, she's now on a different path. So everyone, right. so, so for me, so long when I was walking away from my entire life and I thought, God, what have I done? It's just me. No way. It's, those are people that are quietly ex exiting the matrix, yeah. panicking for a bit, thinking, what have I done? And then suddenly the new, your new friends and family are all over here. Yeah, and they're better people. That's one of the key oh. things that I've found is that... Um, I've, I've never been short in my life. I've never been short of friends, but I know the quality of the friends that I have now are heaps better than the people I regarded as friends. Because when times get tough, you suddenly find that all your friends go, whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> you isn't, can. That, isn't that how it works? You can, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly I've still got a few good friends from my old life, thankfully, and, and they're great people. But I have made more friends in the last yeah three years, as I'm sure lots of people have, you suddenly made all these new friends and you're thinking, how did I not know you were there before? And I'm seeing it on a local level socially that around where I, near where I live, there's a little speakeasy that's sprung up and, and people are getting together and putting on events under the radar and um, it, it's near by a farm where I live. And, and, and you're, I was thinking, there are hundreds of people in my sleepy little county of North Somerset that think like me and I didn't even mm. know they were, they were there yeah. all those years ago when I was waking up. So... Yeah, I'm working somewhere where, where the structure of the organization isn't corporate, it isn't pyramidal. It's very much you work with the World Council for Health. So it's fairly collaborative. And I think right. it's a model for how businesses and organizations will be structured in the future. It's an in-the-round community interest company. So we all have a say in, in what we do and how it works yeah. and how we work together. And it's a lot really of professional people being really, drawn in yeah, and you've done all the conferences yeah. and things. Yeah, we recently so, did the Better Way Conference in Bath in June, yeah. which was a resounding success. And and, and we had doctors and health professionals and campaigners from all over the world. You can still see it online if you want to get a virtual ticket. But um, everyone's saying how refreshing it was. And that's, I really believe, you know, we're talking about creating yeah. a new, um, that's, the, that's a model that can really, really work. And 
World Council for Health has now got partners in over 200 different countries yeah. and affiliates all around and the world. It, and it started one couple of people deciding, no, they're not going to have it. We're going to do yeah. something. Yeah. And it's made a difference. Yeah, yeah. massively so, yeah. Okay. I, I'm going to say, Gemma, it's been brilliant talking to you. I know we, we could go on because there's a lot to talk about. I come back to the blue sky that we've got behind us. My goodness, that looks, well, this is a special edition because look what's coming through. We've got the ferry coming into the, wow. uh, there we are. So yeah. there's a lot of happy people come from France or Spain. I don't know whether that one will have appeared from, but just at the close of our wonderful discussion together we've got a special ship in the background we've got blue sky you've got a very sunny jacket on <laughs> so my my little challenge to you is you've got the uk column audience out there give them what you think is the good news at the moment what you think is going well what uh well i think it's i think it's all going well i think the fact that you're watching uk column uk column has grown hugely over the last two and a half three years as a result yeah. of what's been going on we've had things like i mean my my hat is i have a media hat on so we've think, seen things like the light paper come as a result of what's happening alternative media is springing up now all around the world at an exponential rate as people strive to get information out and question what's going on and i think just if we stay i know it's a cliche but we have to stay high vibration because there's so much information around that commit you go oh no, the world's an awful place still and the globalists are going to win. Only if you think that. We are what we consume, so consume the good stuff yeah. and focus on what you want to manifest. And I know it sounds a bit hippie and woo-woo and out there, but actually for me, for the last two, three yeah, years no, of trauma, is... you've got to stay positive. And I've stayed positive. I walked away from my whole life, left it in the ashes, and now I've never been happier. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. I think that's a lovely place to end on. So Gemma, thank you very much for coming into the UK column studio. It's been really fascinating talking to you and I hope you'll come and see us again. No, I'd love to. And thank you for having me. It's been a massive honour. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much to all the UK column viewers for joining us and uh, we'll be back another time. Thank you. Bye-bye.